The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockhead, stop factoring your fractured factorial function and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 330 with guest Rocky Latka, recorded live Monday, March 31st, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who used the Trojan refactoring, and now his privates are protected... Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Thank you, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Pleasure to be here, Carl Franklin, uh, on the East Coast of the United States of America, right in between Boston and New York. It's called New London, little little town, little town with a nice, nice little groove going on. Your town, my town. Yeah, it's got a. There's a nice little vibe. There's a lot of independent films going on here. There's some new coffee shops. There's a lot of people out of work wandering around trying to become geniuses. Well, and you've been recording uh, with some other bands these days, too, haven't you? Uh, just getting started with that. Actually, video is really, really sparking my interest lately. Uh, that's another show. But I'm uh, Absolutely. Just, suffice to say, we've got the gear now where we can do 720pn video, hours and hours and hours of it, just with batteries and portable rigs. So we're, we're real happy. Anyway, how's uh, life in Vancouver, Richard? Well, you know, spring is coming, so we're plugging away here. I'm building new computers. That's how I can tell it's spring. Hey, you know, I'm building new computers, too. I'm building them for video rendering. Apparently, Sony Vegas has this great feature where you can take a whole network of computers on a grid and use them to split up a rendering job. Nice. Get a nice gigabit Ethernet connection, get some data drives in there, and it just splits a, a video file into however many pieces you have the machines for and just coordinates the whole thing. It's pretty cool. That's nice. You know, those little A open micro machines that I've been using for Strangely would be perfect for that. Yeah. They're tiny. They're like six inches by six inches square. You could put 12 of them in the space of a regular computer. Are they powerful? Got to have some processors. Dual core, four gigs of RAM, you know, full bore machines. Hmm. Well, I have a whole bunch of machines from leftover from the Franklin's Net classroom here. Oh, of course. Yeah. So that's what I'm using those for. But, you know, we'll talk. You bet. We'll talk later. Later. Not on the listener's time, right? What do you got now? Well, I got Better Know Framework. All right, hit me. And I can't believe that we've done how many Better Know Frameworks now? hundred or so? I don't know how many. And uh, I haven't brought up sockets. Of course. That's amazing, really, because you are the socket junkie. I love sockets. <laughs> System.net.sockets. And so I'm going to start by saying... Sockets is the base level communication layer for all internet communication, for all TCP IP communication in Windows. 
So there you go. So that every time you use Internet Explorer, uh, Instant Messenger, email, anything that uses the Internet, eventually it's going to use sockets. And you can, um, well, sockets before .NET was a little bit tricky. You had to use an API. But since they brought forward the stream model, you know, where you have streams and uh, being able to read and write into an arrays and things like that, right. it's very, very easy to, well, not very, very easy. You still have all the issues around sockets. But it's easier to use um, in, a, in a real way. Not everything is a string. Sometimes you send binary data. So you have that issue. Um, the other issue you, ha- you have with sockets is there is no protocol. It's just raw. And at the base level, what HTTP does, which is, you know, obviously sits above sockets, that's very cool, is it gives you that content length tag. It right. says, let's say I'm downloading an image. I want to know exactly how many bytes to expect, you know, and so it gives you that content length. And with that, I know that I got all the data or not. Now, it's not such a big deal with sockets because you're going to either get the data or get an error, but it's still nice to know when it's done if you're just sending a stream of bits, for example. So anyway, system.net.sockets. If you're really interested, I did a DNR TV show on that, and I believe Mark Miller was the host. Right. Yeah. So look in the archives at dnrtv.com. DNR TV, by the way, still an amazing resource for uh, developers. It's full screen, 1024 by 768 projectable, so you can uh, show it during lunch, get your group together, lunch and learn kind of thing, and uh, watch an hour-long sort of half .NET Rocks interview, half presentation with coding. DNRTV.com. Richard, what you got? I got an email about show 323. All right. And it says, great show from the guys at Data Dynamics. I've seen their advertisements in the past, but they never stood out from all the other reporting tools. The interview gave me great insight into why they developed the product and what differentiates it from the others in a very crowded field. Yeah. It would be great to hear from the Telerik developers about their products and philosophy. As a developer, I would love to hear why they entered a fairly crowded market years ago and what differentiates them from all the others. I don't really want to listen to a 60-minute commercial, but rather a discussion about their development process and the niche they feel they fill. Yeah. Thanks for all the great products. Donnie Grande from Richmond, Virginia. That's a great idea. And as a matter of fact, we have a show lined up with some of those guys. Well, and exactly that. You know, we have the advantage because we get to work with these guys that we already got a feel for what they think and how they think it. But it's just fun to share that with everyone else as well. Yeah, absolutely. They have a great story. I love the Data Dynamics story. The funny part, of course, is their most famous product was not the product they started with. Yeah, that's right. They started with the whole cube stuff. Yeah, the analysis stuff. And they realized people just wanted a reporting tool that they could deal with. Yeah. Yep. It's good stuff. And uh, I'm not sure. We don't exactly have the Telerik show booked, but we're talking to them and trying to find a good time. They're actually going to come here into the studio and and uh, and talk to us. They're great guys, and, and it's a good story, too. In fact, I've gotten a whack of emails lately, and I'm sorry I'm using the Canadianism, a whack. But yeah, What is a whack, actually? A whack is a bunch, a lot. Ah, I have gotten a, a whack of emails lately on great show suggestions, and I'm I'm not gonna send mugs to every one of you, but just to call out to some folks here who sent me uh, requests for shows, like Bevan Arps said, "How could you have missed Photosynth when he was when we were talking about the show with Alex Daly?" He says, "Don't worry, Bevan, I've got Photosynth coming up on a show with Scott Stanfield." Awesome. And another email from Muhammad Azam where he said, hey, can we have a little more on Iron Ruby? You bet. I got John Lamb booked. So we'll be talking some Ruby in the near future. John Lamb, who better to talk about that? That's excellent. And uh, speaking of other shows, Dev Teach, May 12th to the 15th, Toronto, Ontario. Yeah. I'll be there. I'll be there. You'll be there. We're going to do a panel discussion on the future of .NET. Oh, that's going to be insane. That's going to be like Jerry Springer. Oh, you see that they so then they've all confirmed now. Here are our panelists: <laughs> Ted Neward, yeah, Oranini. You may oh, recall man. those two the from ORM the ORM Smackdown. Smackdown in Montreal, and then just for a little spice, a little low altitude spice, <laughs> Scott Belware. That's going to be a bloodbath, man. That's going to be out of control. <laughs> 
Anyway, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, the other thing we ought to do is a little cross-pollination for our other shows. In fact, your show, Run As Radio, runasradio.com. How many shows do you have, you and Greg Hughes? We got 50 published as of today. And, of course, new shows coming out every week. The latest show I just recorded, which will be published in a couple of weeks, that you guys will go crazy for is the IPv6 show. Sean Seiler from Microsoft gave us a great discussion about where IPv6 is going. You know, 2008 is a big year for IPv6. And we're going to start seeing an integration between the IPv4 network and the IPv6 network side by side. So I'm really excited about uh, what we got there. Yeah, that was a great show. Also, uh, on DNR TV, I spoke to Donald Farmer finally about SQL Server analysis. Awesome. Yeah, so that's up right now. And uh, we got other good stuff coming up. All right, let's get to our guest. Of course, he's been on the show since, I don't know, show nine or something like something that? Something like that, yeah. Rocky, you remember when your last show was? Not your last show, your first show? Yeah, I don't remember the number. It was, it was definitely way right at the beginning. Twelve, perhaps. Anyway, uh, Rocky Lotka is a software developer. He's with uh, Magenic, of course, and author of many staple books on programming going all the way back to the days of VB. Uh, business objects seems to be his forte, although his... Uh, his expertise covers a variety of topics. Now he's actually getting into WPF and um, Silverlight and all of that good stuff and, and the whole business objects with with WPF applications. And, of course, he's famous for his CSLA uh, framework, which he gives away free with his books, which we still don't understand, but that's okay. Uh, it's a wonderful gesture on his part. He's given so much to the community that way. Um, for the cost of a book, you get this incredible framework, and he supports it. And now we're up to version 3.5. Is that right, Rocky? Yes, it is. Wow. So for the for the first half of this uh, discussion, I'd like to talk about that. For the second half, I'd really like to go into some of the things we were just getting into before we started recording, which is uh, sort of obsolete technologies, things that we were talking about at the early days of .NET that turned out to be not so useful. So, CSLA, give us the elevator speech first for the for the newbie, and then let's uh, go through a brief history and then tell us what's new. Well, CSLA is a uh, framework that's geared toward helping you build a business layer that's object-oriented, and on top of that business layer that has all your validation authorization and so forth, on top of that, you can build Windows Forms, Web Forms, uh, WPF, Workflow, uh, service-oriented interfaces. Um, ideally, if you, if you do everything carefully and follow the rules, you can use the same business DLL to, to power all of those different interfaces, even simultaneously if you're a glutton for punishment, I suppose. Um, and then, conversely, they sit on top of virtually any data access layer, whether that be simple ADO.net or uh, the Entity Framework or Link to SQL. Uh, it doesn't really matter. You, you build a data access layer underneath your objects. You build your objects that do all your interesting you know, business work, and then you build uh, different kinds of presentation or interface layers on top. And so CSLA is really geared toward helping build that business layer in the middle. Yeah. And in the, the first, didn't this start with VB6, or, or was that something else? No, believe it or not, it, I suppose, technically started with VB4. VB4. Um, although, I, I need to clearly point out that the .NET version is a complete rewrite. Um, Which is good, seeing how everything was different. But every now and then I get these emails from people saying, well, we can't use your framework, it's not really .NET. Like, well, you know, some of the architectural concepts go back to, you know, 1995, but the reality is that it's, uh, it, it really is .NET. <laughs> Couldn't exist without it. Well, and, and I remember reading uh, emails and things from you in the very early days of .NET, because for you, it was a huge rethink, too. You worked in the VB space and the way that objects happened in the old old style VB and .NET really tore that all apart and there was a quite a struggle to get the first versions of .NET really working uh, with a great object oriented layer. 
Yeah. Well, I, I rewrote the framework numerous times. I, I believe four um, during from 1999 up through 2001. Um, just trying different things, trying to see what really worked and what didn't. And, you know, some of it was the the full object oriented nature of .NET, but some of it too was um, you know some of the underpinnings, the way remoting worked, the way the binary formatter worked. Um, the way reflection works, uh, the way data binding works. There were a lot of things to uh, figure out, and a, a lot of the ideas that I thought were, were going to work uh, didn't necessarily pan out, or, or you know maybe they did work, but they precluded data binding, or uh, they supported data binding but made it really hard to do the client-server aspects. And so it, it's definitely a balancing act. Uh, of choices between, you know, you say, well, I want to really make it sing and, and work really well in a multi-tier setting. And there are some really good solutions to that that might shut out entire other parts of .NET. Stuff that people really want to use. And, and a data binding is one that comes to mind. Yeah. I mean, with data binding, it's interesting because that was not my primary focus when I started building CSLA, I was really trying to build an end-tier uh, object-oriented framework. But the reality is that I've spent more time making data binding work than any other piece of the framework. And, I, of course, I, I remember observing a lot of this going on and thinking, here's a guy who's absolutely shaking out this framework end-to-end, trying right. to make sure everything works. And you got a lot of reaction from Microsoft as you as you actually took the stuff to work. And, and you would never, whenever you finally wrote an email that said, this doesn't work, and Every, here's why, yep. it was very lengthy and detailed. Everybody knew that, you know, you had done the work, too. Yeah. Rocky doesn't give up easily. Well, you know... Um, can, can we go through sort of like a history of features? Because I think the feature set now as it is, and even before 3.5 is pretty amazing, but you sort of kept adding these great features to it. Uh, can you just take us through a little bit of that history? Sure. Well, like I said, I started, um, trying to build this thing in 1999 with those, you know, very early alpha bits or whatever we had. Yeah. Um, you know, the first real version came out pretty much concurrent with .NET 1.0 coming out and provided basic support for Windows Forms and not a lot for Web Forms because at the time Web Forms data binding was pretty restrictive and uh, supported remoting only because that was, you know, back then in, in 2002, that was very clearly the successor or replacement for DCOM. Yeah. And then .NET 1.1 came out, and I released another version of CSLA to kind of correspond to that, along with a C-sharp version. Uh, this thing started with VB, because I kind of expected that the uh, VB community would move into .NET and stay the VB community. Um, I'm not sure that's happened so much, but that's a different topic, I guess. Um, and so now... Starting at that point, I've maintained the framework in both uh, VB and C-sharp and, and its reference application both, which is a lot of work, but I do that anyway, make everybody happy. Uh, when .NET 2.0 came out, I created CSLA 2.0, and th- that was a big deal because that was the first time, uh, so this was 2004, 2005, was the point at which I decided to actually treat this thing like a framework. Now, prior to that point, a lot of people used it as a framework, but I was treating it as a side effect of my books. Which, thank you, by the way, on behalf of the entire community. Thank you. I mean, that was a great decision for the community. It was for you, too, ultimately, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. I, I you know, Sometimes it's a little challenging um, because all of the, the money that I make you know, that makes this possible comes through indirect sources. You know, Magenic is effectively a, a sponsor, in a sense, and... Um, and then, you know, the sales from my books are, are hopefully going to put my kids through college. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, uh, buy his uh, books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Please. Uh, um, but, you know, yeah, it's, uh, if you look back at, at the versions of CSLA.net, you know, one point whatever, um, it, it was kind of a mess. And because I didn't 
formalism to my source control or my release schedule. And starting with 2.0, um, I started using uh, what at the time CVS, and now I'm using Subversion. Um, and yeah, I pay quite a bit of attention to the source control and and change logs and and trying to have a pretty predictable um, set of releases and tests and so forth. Um, but 2.0 was a big deal, and and 2.1 was a bunch of performance enhancements around on top of 2.0. But it was a big deal because ASP.NET finally got some good bidirectional data binding, and Windows Forms, um, you know, with a binding source, took a major step forward in in .NET 2, and of course generics, which changed a lot of the coding structures. And uh, then Microsoft came out with .NET 3, and you know, I quibble with their version numbers on a lot of people do, <laughs> and I debated whether to you know follow keep in lockstep with their version scheme or or use a a uh, more realistic version scheme. But ultimately, um, due to feedback on my forum, uh, I decided to stay in lockstep. It avoids confusion. Uh, or making mm. more confusion mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> with the version numbers. So CSLA 3 is, although, see, there's still confusion, right? Because .NET 3 is totally additive on top of .NET 2. Yeah, right? it should have been called 2.5. should have been. And so CSLA 3 is also totally additive on top of CSLA 2. And so the reality is that if you're a .NET 2.0 or 3.0 developer, you should use CSLA 3.0. Ah, uh, sure. <laughs> because, you know, that's, because that's weird. Right. And so there's a bunch of .NET 2 bug fixes, for instance, or, or features in CSLA 3 that are really useful if you're a .NET 2 developer. Right. And then optionally, if you're using WPF, WCF, or WF, then obviously you want to use CSLA 3 to exploit those. So it's a little confusing. Uh, where did you add the the whole undo stuff? Well, the undo stuff has been there. That That's one of the architectural um, concepts that started in 1995. Okay, so that's been there from the beginning. You, know, you always wanted a master undo. Yeah. I always wanted, well, it's essentially supporting for the cancel button. Right. If you, if you got a form with a cancel button, which most, you know, old VB forms and Windows forms today, and I think a lot of WPF, um, apps will have cancel buttons, um, you really need some sort of an undo concept. And I remember talking to you about this. You use reflection for that? Yes, that's right. Right. Because it, it runs through the, uh, to, to take a snapshot of your object's state, it runs through the object and, and uses reflection to grab all your field values. Yeah. And then if you do click cancel, it uses reflection to restore the state to that snapshot. Do you go so far as to touch the private members too? Which I don't mean to sound, you know, <laughs> sexual or anything, but... That's, that's a little personal, isn't it? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Richard, you're not laughing. You're making me sound really evil, man. I just, uh, I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah, what, what kind of show is this, Carl? Yeah, jeez. Uh, I just realized I said that afterwards. It's just, <laughs> just happened. Uh, the answer is yes. Um, okay, so so basically, the question is, you know, because the the private variables are the ones that change based on the logic, and if those, you know, don't change in step, you've got it. You got issues. Well, I think what you're touching on is one of the biggest single things that CSLA, uh, at least for, you know, as an architecture or design philosophy, um, brings to the table, and that is that CSLA business objects, it's totally acceptable to have read-only properties. Yeah, and it's totally acceptable, and in, in fact, encouraged to have properties where you put business logic in the set block, um, one, well, one way or another, there's, uh, such that when values come into the object, it might trigger business behaviors. Right. And I, 
um, contrast that with kind of the the other trend in the industry right now, which is to use data transfer or entity objects, which are essentially dumb containers for data and only have public read-write properties, essentially public fields. And all of the business logic is in some other place, like a service or a workflow activity or a rules engine, or you know, basically you have total separation between your data and your behaviors. And I'm not going to sit in judgment on which one is arbitrarily better or worse. Yeah, sure. they're, they're both valid, but CSLA is very much geared toward this idea of enabling the encapsulation of of behavior and the data together. So would it, would it be safe to say that um, 3.5 is really sort of adding features from Link and uh, in all of its glory and all of its different permutations and the entity framework um, to CSLA? And if so, how does that actually work? Did you use Link internally? Um, do you work with it externally? What was your architectural decision there? Sure. Well, CSLA 3.5 has three main um, kind of focuses, one of which, of course, is supporting Link, because that's the, the big thing in .NET 3.5. Um, but also, I focused a lot on um, productivity enhancements. Um, so that for most business objects, you probably write 30 to 40% less code than you used to. Wow. And then the third thing is that, you know, .NET 3.5 comes with .NET 2 SP1 and .NET 3 SP1, or otherwise sometimes known as .NET 2A and 3A. And so there's some enhancements and changes there to pre-existing .NET behaviors, especially in WPF that I had to support. So if we talk about the link concepts first, um, and, and here I need to uh, thank Aaron Erickson. He's a colleague of mine at Magenic, and he did a lot of the uh, work, uh, well, almost all of it, basically, um, to implement what we're calling link to CSLA. And it's interesting, you know, because link itself is this big umbrella term. So there's link to objects, link to SQL, and so forth. And almost every framework author out there is creating a link to name your framework, right, to, to provide extra support. And in the case of CSLA, you got to keep in mind where CSLA is supposed to sit in the architecture. It's, it's not a data access tool. It's a business layer tool. And so things like link to SQL are data access layer concepts and sit underneath CSLA or behind it or however you want to think about that. And so there's not a lot that was necessary for uh, CSLA to work with link to SQL. Well, arguably nothing. Um, I did a little bit of, of enhancements to a thing called a data mapper that makes it easier to copy data between objects. But the reality is that um, what I've been doing and, and really loving uh, is instead of using ADO.NET, I've been using link to SQL in order to populate my objects with data. And that's really, really nice. Yeah, that must be really nice. And that's less code for you, too, obviously, right? Well, in hearing comes the two things that I really like about CSLA. It's great that we have this phenomenal business framework, but I also get a sense whenever a new feature comes out from Microsoft, if Rocky's using it, it must work. <laughs> so, you know, to really hear Rocky talk through the issues around using Link gives me confidence that Link's going to do something I want. Yeah, I would agree with that. I appreciate that. Uh, I, I, I think it does. I, the code to talk to the database using link to SQL is definitely simpler and easier to read, I think, than the code using you know, raw data readers and, and um, command objects. And it's certainly simpler to write because you, you know, for the most part, drag your tables and your stored procedures into the link to SQL designer, let it generate a lot of that code, um, and then you can use strongly typed methods to do your inserts and updates, and you can use the link 
uh, query syntax to get the data that you want to populate your objects. And um, I personally, I really like the result. Um, there's there is no doubt from you know that there's a small performance impact to using it compared to you know using a raw data reader. Uh, but you know, I bet you. 90% or 85% of all the applications out there will never notice the difference. It just works. It just works. And IJW technology. Is, yeah, you got to love it. <laughs> now, the other aspect of link is the link to objects part. And here's where uh, Aaron did all this work. And there, there's really two things here because... Um, this is maybe if you put yourself, put your UI developer hat on. And so as a UI developer, you go out and you get a CSLA object. Um, and it loads itself with data from the database. You know, it's, it literally is a line of code to get this object, even though all sorts of cool stuff probably happened behind the scenes. And you've got this, maybe it's a collection of, of customer data. And you say, man, I wish I could sort this thing different ways or, or you know, filter it now that I've got it. And, of course, you might arguably choose to sort or filter it in the database, right, before you got the list. But let's just assume you didn't. Um, and so you've got this list. In CSLA 2 and 2.1, I introduced these uh, wrapper classes called uh, sorted binding list and filtered binding list that you could use to kind of wrap any collection and sort and filter them. And those were powerful and useful, but they're not nearly as powerful as, as using a link statement. And so, and, and you don't have to do anything, right? Link to objects just works against the CSLA collection because it is, after all, just a collection of objects. So you were able to take some code out of your framework, essentially. Well, I will be able to. I, I left those classes in um temporarily for backward compatibility. Yeah, they're deprecated then. Yeah, they're deprecated. I, I just don't want to break people, you know. <laughs> that that's a yeah, uh, you you've got the same baggage that Microsoft gets. People committed to your old version now that you've got a new way doesn't mean they're going to move. Yeah, and you know, that's fine. If if you do too many breaking changes at once, then you lose you literally just lose people. They lose yeah. confidence in what you're doing. Uh, at the same time, like Microsoft, you know, I do break things because you have to in order to move forward. It's uh, one of those delicate balance issues. Definitely. Do you know the perfect formula for building and managing websites? Follow me here. Zero effort plus Sitefinity CMS equals infinity in website development. That's right. Telerik challenges you to explore its innovative Sitefinity content management system and offers you a chance to win a sleek Zune MP3 player or a Sitefinity license. These cool awards could be yours if you only answer a few easy questions about Telerik's Sitefinity CMS. All you have to do is watch five short movies and see how easy it is to build infinitely beautiful websites with zero effort. You'll learn some cool facts about Sitefinity and the effortless creation of websites. So go to www.sitefinity.com and give it a try. It's fun, it's interesting, and it can get you a free license or a free Zoom. Does the link stuff that you were just talking about make make it um, more productive? In the, and is that really the productivity enhancements you were talking about, or is that something totally different? No, interestingly, the productivity enhancements are, are totally separate. The yeah, the the link to SQL or the, sorry, the link to CSLA stuff. Um, Aaron already has an open source project called I for O, which is indexing or indexed queries against object collections, and he merged the I for O functionality into CSLA, so you can do indexed queries against um, CSLA collections. That's one part of it. And then the other part is kind of hard to explain, but if, if you do a query against the CSLA collection, um, you'll get back, because of link to CSLA, you'll get back a bindable collection that you can just bind to a uh, like a grid in Windows Forms 
And the user can even go so far as to delete or add items to that collection, and the items will get deleted or added in the original list, too. So it's like a uh, a synchronized view against the original collection, even though it's the result of a link query. Wow. And so, which is pretty powerful stuff. (laughs) You know, it's, it's really neat. But the productivity features... Um, yeah, I, about six or seven months ago, I was becoming increasingly frustrated just using CSLA myself with just how much code you have to write to declare something like a property. And it was like 13 lines of code just to declare a property in VB and let's say 12 or 10 lines in C sharp. I mean, that's, you know, a lot of code. And, you know, even with snippets or whatever, it still seemed like a lot of, you know, the snippets let you create code quickly, but you still have to maintain it, right? And you even have code rush templates and things too, right? Absolutely. And people have created code rush templates, all sorts of templates for a variety of tools. And, you know, the, and there's a ton of code generators out there too. Right. But you still got to maintain that stuff. And so I put a, a lot of work into rethinking how you declare a property and have it now to the point that um, you're able to get a property down to eh, six or so, seven lines of code, so about half the lines of code that it used to be. Ah. Now, how did you do that? Well, uh, a couple different things that I did. One um, is I created some helper methods that uh, get and retrieve property values for you. And um, there's different variations on how you do that. One is that you can still declare um, a private field to store your value. And these helpers just kind of um, retrieve the... It's, it's kind of weird to think about, but you use the helper method to get the value from your own field. But the reason you do that is because the helper method can trigger things like uh, authorization checks and, and business rule um, you know, processing and so forth, and it's able to encapsulate several lines of code. Stuff that you don't have to put in every property handler. Exactly. And so each each get and each set is exactly one line of code. And then as an even further optimization, and this was in preparation for where I thought I was going to have to go with Silverlight, um, there's a variation where you don't even have to declare a property at all, but CSLA manages the uh, property value, or sorry, you don't have to declare a field at all. CSLA uh, manages the property's value for you behind the scenes. And um, so that saves you even a little bit more code, um, although there's a slight performance cost because now CSLA is essentially keeping those values in a list and it has to be able to retrieve them. Right, which is slower than getting them from a, a simple field. Um, but there's some tricky, I, I, I thought, kind of fun code because I use generics uh, in that collection so that I'm able to avoid boxing and unboxing. And you know, there's some, you know, it, it was fun. I enjoyed that. And so what that let me do too, this managed um, property value concept. Now CSLA is able to manage references to child objects. And so if you've got like a, a, a sales order that has a collection of line items, the, that collection is a child of the sales order. And CSLA now is capable of understanding this parent-child relationship. And so I was able to eliminate a whole bunch of code that you, you used to have to write to um, make the parent aware that it was a child, cascade events, um, like the list changed event goes up. And there's a whole... I don't even know how many lines of code in in every parent object, probably 20 or more, that are now just gone because CSLA is able to do all of that for you automatically. And uh, so that was a a pretty big deal. And then the final thing is that the the data portal, which is the the thing that enables the end-tier capabilities of CSLA, now also understands child objects. And so that both reduces a bunch of code, but also um, 
standardizes. So your uh, implementation of a child class and a parent class are almost identical now, at least in structure, they are the same. And so it reduces the effort to you know, learn the framework and, and training and, and so forth. Is there a new book to go along with this new framework? Well, there will be. I'm, I'm working on it now. Um, the scheduled uh, availability date is September, which is, I think, later than everybody would like. But uh, the, this challenge, though, if you think about it, because CSLA continues to support Windows Forms, Web Forms, and plus now it does uh, WPF and everything else. And so the book was 750 pages, and I'm still deb- debating on exactly what I'm going to do with this thing, because if I cover everything, um, it could, I think, easily be well over a 1,000 pages, which is a little bit bigger than I would like. Yeah, that's a pretty huge book. Now, the binding limit is 1,600 pages, man. So I just got the new one from John, from Scott Hanselman and co., and the thing put my back out. See, and that's what I don't want to do. <laughs> what about splitting it up into different books based on the different interfaces? Well, and that that's kind of the um, current thinking is that the the book is going to be titled Expert 2008 Business Objects, and there will be a C-sharp and VB editions of it. Now you're going to um, have for Windows Forms, for ASP.NET, for... And, and so this book from A-Press will probably be like the core book that covers the framework and the architecture and, and my thinking. And then we'll have maybe one or two chapters showing how to use the framework. Um, and then there will be subsequent books that, that focus more specifically, and whether these are paper books or e-books, I, I'm not sure, but focus and say, okay, so you want to build a uh, workflow on top of this thing, or you want to build a WPF interface, you know, and so it'll be more more targeted. I think that's what I'm going to end up doing. You ever think about just having somebody else write those? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've actually had a couple people offer, and you know, the thing with book writing, and, and we've talked about this before, I think, yeah. is that it's a lot of work, Yeah, and it seems like such a... a you know, sexy, fun thing to do until you get oh, into no. it about five or ten pages and you realize just how, you know, grueling it can be. Oh, you get, yeah, when it's when you get that first chapter done and, you, and then you think, oh boy, 30 more of these. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I've had people offer and, and I have yet to um, um, have anybody quite make it through because I, I think it just gets to be overwhelming. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. So, Rocky, um, this segues nicely into the second topic of our discussion, which is sort of, uh, you know, classes, technologies, things uh, in the .NET framework that uh, were a lot more important in the early days than they are now. Um, You know, you brought up remoting, of course. I was thinking of a lot of classes that go along with remoting, like the activator class. You know, what's the, what is the, do we even need an activator class anymore? I think you do. I I think it's interesting because some of the high level things like remoting, um, at least from a client server perspective, um, are being replaced by WCF or, you know, and and that's just, I think, a natural part of the evolution of the platform and, and it's all good. But, but there are other aspects to, you know, to, to pick on remoting um, that are very, very deep in .NET itself. So right. communicating across, yeah. well, communicating across app domains across app or, domains. or contexts uses serialization, but it's using plumbing that's part of remoting. And it's and still, so, it's still a good technology to use on a single machine where you have multiple applications communicating across their app domains. Well, it's almost inescapable. Um, you know, .NET uses it all by itself to do a lot of these things, and so it's not really like you have a great option. Yeah. Um, if you create an, you know, if you have code that creates another app domain, in order to get stuff started in that other app domain, .NET will use remoting to do that communication. You could then switch to WCF with named pipes, you know, for your own communication, but 
the fact is that behind the scenes, remoting will have been used. And the, th- the thing is that I was getting at is that's that's a good application for remoting, and it's something that's where remoting is necessary. But those applications are niche, don't you think? I mean, what we used to use remoting for was, like a, like you said, a replacement for distributed com. So, I mean, any kind of client-server kind of distributed application was using remoting in the very beginning, which is, you know, almost all of them. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, any sort of um, plug-in infrastructure, well, I shouldn't say any, but, you know, if you want to have a plug-in infrastructure in your application and you want those plugins to be unloadable, you're going to need to put them in another app domain. And so you're going to end up using the activator and some of that stuff um, in order to load those types. There's problems with that, though, isn't there? Isn't there a problem unloading other app domains? Yeah, all these That's things a are... That's a can of worms right there, isn't there? It is. <laughs> just because you can doesn't make it a good idea. Well, I just didn't want to give people the impression that, yeah, we can just load and unload app domains willy-nilly because there no, are rules. No, that's true. But at the same time, if you're... yeah, And I do this um, in some of the designer support that I've built for, like, web forms and whatnot in CSLA, um, where where you need to be able to load types in order to reflect against them to get their shape or whatever, but then you don't want to keep them around. And so there really are appropriate uses for some of these things. Yeah, especially if they're heavy. They have a heavy memory footprint. So what what are some of the other technologies that we used to use a lot that aren't so useful anymore? Well, one of the ones that you brought up uh, before the show was uh, late binding. Right. Richard did, actually. Yeah. Or Richard. uh, (laughs) We were chatting, and I just said, does anybody use late binding? Well, I mean, that's the basis of dynamic languages is all late binding, and, you know, the whole type system sort of goes out the window. It gets turned on its head, right? Well, I think it's interesting because I was having a conversation with uh, a colleague actually inside of Microsoft about late binding and especially in in the context of uh, vb.net. And so I ended up blogging, um, you know, on my blog to see what people used it for. And and, eh, the the, uh, response to the blog post was pretty limited in general, and it was mixed. About half of the people said, well, I use it occasionally for, you know, very exclusive things, and the other half said I would never use late binding ever. And then, and, but, and, but, and cursing you for even suggesting it. Yeah, well, I don't think anybody quite went that far. <laughs> but it's true that that then you turn around and you think, well, this there's this whole trend around um, you know, dynamic languages and Microsoft building the dynamic language runtime, and there's Ruby and Python, and um, you know, and obviously VB has some of these, always has had some of these features. And so if that's such a big popular trend, why is it that so many people so violently oppose the whole premise, right? I think it's it's early experiences. And I I thought you were almost touching on this with your reaction to data binding coming out of the old VB world where data binding generally was a disaster. Uh, I, I just think we we carry this baggage. You you only have to be burned by technology once before you'll just stay away from it. I call it old pain. Yeah, and 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 how many times did we get burned by data binding, and how long did it take us to believe that the .NET version would work? Well, and and you know the reality is that even today, and I think it does work, but it still can be pretty painful, especially in Windows forms. Because it's it's a very rich, powerful technology. And There's another way means, of saying fat and slow. Well, <laughs> certainly a lot of sharp edges. <laughs> <laughs> and but the reason I say that I think it works is because um, I, I just look at it from a, a pragmatic viewpoint and say, well, how much code would I have to write if I didn't use data binding? Versus how much code do I have to write? you know, with data binding, even though I've got to deal with its idiosyncrasies. And I write less code with data binding than without, and therefore it's a win. 
And I definitely got the sense in uh, reading through your blog as you're working on uh, CSLA 3.5 that you were very excited at the amount of code you were, you were reducing. Well, you look at um, WPF and the way that the data binding works in XAML, and um, Silverlight is going to be somewhat comparable to this, um, but especially WPF because it's got the data provider model. Holy cow, guys. I mean, I've got it to the point that you can create a basic, like a maintenance screen with zero lines of C-sharp code or VD, nice. nothing, just wow. XAML. And that's what data binding should be all about. Right? Right. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. I, I, I've, we've talked about sort of the getting back to the, the types versus dynamic versus, you know, late binding, what was what we used to call it. That, uh, I don't know. I, I I used to I used to like it when I needed it, you know what I mean. But the back then we were using the Windows API, and we re, we you know we had to sort of make up those declare statements. And thank God for Dan Appleman's book, you know, which yeah, gave great. us a little. He was like our compiler check, you know. <laughs> but that that was the pain. I mean, that was the you know you get oh no, it's a pointer to a long, not a long. You know, it's a. It's a this, it's a that. Oh, we didn't know what it was, so things would blow up all the time. So the the type safety of the .NET framework was really welcome, but now that we have that sort of down below, uh, it's kind of nice to it's kind of nice to not have to worry about it up at the uh, up at the application level because you know, I mean, it, the types are there; they're underneath. You just don't have to. You're not so restricted by them. I, I can't tell you how many times I've refactored code just to just to make the compiler happy. Well, and this is per- personally my favorite feature of .NET three five. Um, and, and there are a number that I really like, but my favorite feature is type inference. Yeah. Yep. Because I've always thought the compiler should be smart enough to know what type my field was. Yeah. You know, I can tell. I can look at it. Why that? Why can't the compiler? And and now it can. And I think that's just so awesome. Yeah, I agree. We're also balancing off this. You know, where are we going to go? We've got a real breaking point here between the dynamic languages model and the functional programming models. Like we, the whole concept of type is is under attack. Yeah, it seems like it's going to be very different in the immediate future. Well, and I think it probably needs to be a, a little bit different than it has been. You know, obviously, strong typing is important, and yet, at the same time, um, I'm looking at uh, how does CSLA work in a Silverlight world, for instance. And because Silverlight is a subset of .NET, CSLA, some subset of it will run in Silverlight. But then what's even more important is that um, if you're business objects in Silverlight are calling services to get their data, because okay, that's essentially the model, then what you're getting back are, are entity objects or data transfer objects or whatever, you know, lightweight data containers, but they're objects. And so then you say, oh, you know what, I could create um, data, essentially data access code that talks to these services, and then I could create similar or maybe even the same data access code that uses link to SQL for another context. And if your, uh, if the results from your service have the same shape as the results from your, uh, link query, then you should be able to use them interchangeably, right? But you can't because even though they have exactly the same shape, they're of different types. And so, boom, right? Now what do you do? And here's a case where some of the dynamic language features, um, you know, and obviously it's a trade-off maybe between performance and maintainability, but uh, where some of the dynamic language features really come in handy in that you can just use whatever you got back, and as long as it conforms to the shape, it works. You don't care what, what you know, quote-unquote type it is. And VB9, uh, the, the current VB, in some of its very early releases, had this prototype feature. Um, I forget what it was called now, but basically you would uh, declare uh, a special type of interface, and you could say, well, any object 
that conforms to this interface shape um, I can use in a essentially strongly typed manner. And it was a very clever and cool concept. Unfortunately, it didn't make it into the final. But I, I hope to, you know, it'd be very nice if we saw it come back again um, as a language feature in the future. Yeah. I totally, I couldn't agree more. So let me ask you about CSLA and languages like F-sharp, functional things. Um, did, the, did these two universes meld? Did these two galaxies collide? Well, I think that it's important to keep in mind that languages ultimately are designed to, to fill different roles. And sometimes it's hard to see because VB and C-sharp are designed for the same role. And so, you know, we can often uh, start to think, oh, yeah, all languages are interchangeable. But that's not really true. And so languages like F-sharp that are, are you know, particularly good at doing a lot of, um, well, functional programming, but, you know, you know, things like math, multi-threaded parallelism, there's a lot of, of capabilities uh, where it's very, very strong, and yet I'm pretty skeptical that it's ever going to be a great general-purpose language that you would use to construct a Windows form. And, and there are some folks that would argue with you on that as well. Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see when you start playing around with it, diving into it, and making a CSLA version for F-sharp, what, what ultimately happens. It'd be great proof. Well... I'm not sure I'm going to go there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know um, either. But I've I have I don't know, and I'm not speaking from experience. But I thought the the goal of F sharp was to also provide the functionality of C sharp. Yeah, I guess I don't know that for a fact. I don't know it either. I mean, I've seen stuff that looks a lot like C sharp, but but you you're getting into the trade off here. Of you're right. I remember saying to to folks that VB.net had a lot more in common with C-sharp than it ever had with VB6. The two languages are too similar, and, and we have sort of forgotten that it used to be different languages for different purposes. And I definitely think the, the rise of languages we're seeing right now is a reaction to that, that it's time to start exploring other ways to think about the problem. Uh, and and, and so the trade-off is going to be the things that C-sharp are really good at is, are not going to be the strong suits of F-sharp. And that uh, it might be harder to do some of those things. It's a question of whether the net code is actually better. And I hope they stay uh, separate, divergent, because um, you know this this idea of of having everything similar and and every every language being able to do all the same things in the same way. Well, then where where's the diversity? Where's the interesting? You know, on the other hand. If you've got a language that's particularly good at doing you know, complicated algorithmic processing and can do a bunch of uh, very powerful parallelism and exploit multiple cores in, in a safe way um, easily, which is, I think, a lot of what F-sharp is about, um, they should revel in that. <laughs> well, and, and again, if we have problems that lend themselves to great parallelism, maybe that's the solution. When you talk about what C-sharp isn't good at, I think multi-threaded coding is one of those things. You can do it, but it's hard. Right. I guess, you know, and there, nobody is saying that you can't use these things together, right? And that's one of the great things about .NET is you can write your assemblies that do the multi-threaded stuff and multi-core things in F-sharp. And then you can write your Windows forms in C-sharp and you don't have to pick. I think that's exactly right. And that's why I, I hope that there is not some real big push to make um, yeah, I mean, the idea of making F sharp a first class language—that's great. But if if the ultimate goal is to um, make it so that everything I can do with C sharp, I can do with F sharp, that seems pointless to me. That that does, you're not serving either language that way. That's right. And and so if I if I'm going to use you know XAML to create my UI and C sharp to create my business objects and F sharp to create some of my complicated um, you know, rate calculation engine. Um, that's great, and and I'm very happy to have three different languages that are very specialized to solve these problems in the most efficient manner possible. Well, and I also think that's that F sharp is not the only way that people are trying to solve the multi processing problem. I think that 
P-Link has some possibilities as well. There, there are a bunch of really smart people working on the multiprocessor problem, and they're going to throw a bunch of choices at us, and we're going to have to take them all out for a spin and find out what works. And Absolutely. that's a wonderful place for us to be. And we can do that. Yeah. <laughs> we can do that. We, we will enjoy doing that. <laughs> Rocky, is the CSLA 3.5 framework available now? The, the This is the official launch right here. The CSLA.NET 3.5 framework is, is now officially available. That is so awesome. Where can we get it? Lotka.net? That's right. L-H-O-T-K-A? Dot net. Dot net. Well, Rocky, what can I say? It's been another great uh, talk with you. I, I enjoy our talks even when we're not talking on .NET Rocks. And uh, uh, great stuff, as always. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a